This is Talking Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talking Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Blacktail Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. Welcome back to another episode of Talking Mule Deer. I'm Jody Stemmler. And I'm Steve Belinda. And hey, Jody, what was that cool music we were just listening to? That cool music happens to be from our guests that we have on today. We've got Jay Allen Smith, um, who you may know through Rugged Expeditions. You may not know that Allen is also quite a musician. Allen, welcome. Thanks for having me. What a great morning. It is absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much for your time today, and uh, we, we really appreciate you. So tell us a little bit. You're a musician as well as a world traveler and an incredible hunter. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your music and, and how you got involved in all of this. Well, the music started out, uh, you know, loving rock and roll in the old days and played in a lot of bands, uh, you know, through high school and college. And, you know, loved the whole thing. Of course, everybody loves to be on stage. And then, uh, but then I soon found that you can't pay for many hunts being a musician. <laughs> True story. Yeah, I had to go out and get a real job, but still kept playing, you know, in the background of that. And uh, I've uh, actually, my family's very musical. I've got a brother, Monty, who's been in several of the shows, and he does all the music for the show and uh, also plays with me, and we record in his studio. So I've been lucky in that I've always had it, you know, in my life one way or the other. And he's quite accomplished. He's played with everybody from, oh, uh, Johnny Winter, Tower of Power, Ricky Nelson, all kinds of guys. He's uh, one of those fantastic musicians that when somebody shows up in Seattle and they, they need a guitar player, they call Monty. So, but uh, anyhow, we've been at it for uh, quite a while. We had it the pleasure of playing with Ted Nugent uh, this past winter and then uh, got him worked into a show and uh, that was really fun to get to play with a guy of his talent and you know while we're on that subject uh, one of the things with Ted you love him or hate him uh, and same thing with his music he's really doing some great things which we tried to highlight in the show with his camp for kids and that's an important thing for me. We're really trying to do everything we can to promote getting kids out and get kids out hunting and in the outdoors as much as possible. Because, of course, as we all know, if we don't keep recruiting new hunters coming up, you know, we're, we're going to be dinosaurs one day. So um, it's nice to see that Ted's involved in that. And I think, you know, he gets his share of bad press, but he's really doing some great things out there when it comes to kids and that. So uh, that combined with getting to play with the Motor City Mad Men was just a blast. Yeah, I listened to that. You uh, you held your own pretty well there. In uh, You guys were playing in some Clapton, right? Crossroads? Yeah, we did a little Crossroads. We did a little J.J. Kale, uh, Call Me the Breeze, and some other things. And, oh, you know, it's always good to play some 12-bar blues. Everybody knows how to do that. So it was... Uh, it was a blast. That's great. That sounds like a lot of fun. So tell us a little bit about Rugged Expeditions. And you were born in Canada, um, but uh, moved to the U.S. and you attended Chico State University, right? Yeah. It's a, it, speaking of which, of Canada, this is kind of a funny story that uh, a lot of people don't know. 
But Shockey and I were actually born about 75 miles away from each other in the middle of nowhere, Saskatchewan. Really? And Yeah, and I like to tell the story that it's kind of amazing that two guys would end up in the hunting show business, and one of us actually ended up with a great TV show. <laughs> I'm not going to ask which one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jim will love that one. That's one we use on stage once in a while. But anyhow, yeah, no, it is kind of weird that, you know, what's the odds? But, yeah, we came down and um, started getting into hunting when I was in uh, school. And uh, we had a neighbor that uh, he was into duck hunting and pheasant hunting. And uh, we were living in the Seattle area. And we go over to eastern Washington, which is where most of our hunting is. And he got us into it, my brothers and I. And then one thing led to another where um, I ended up starting a business in Kodiak, Alaska. And, of course, once I got there, you know, I was in hunting Mecca. And that's when I got into hunting, you know, uh, more and more and got to learn more about big game hunting by going out on my own as an Alaskan and getting a chance to chase all the different animals that are up there and, of course, the fishing opportunities and everything else. Uh, you know, really lucky to get up there. And at some point it turned into a vice, I guess, by looking. <laughs> so your first big game animal, if I'm not mistaken, was a sick of blacktail, right? It was, uh, Kodiak being the mecca for those things. Sure. And uh, we were able to, uh, you know, they've always had several licenses you could get per person, uh, both as residents and as non-residents. And, uh, you know, a wonderful animal, um, fantastic eating. I think probably one of the best deer uh, when it comes to eating. Uh, lots of fat on them. And, you know, they've got to bulk up for the rough winters up there and, They've done really good, but I think one of the most challenging things about hunting deer on Kodiak, of course, is the bear situation, which everybody's heard the stories of, you know, you shoot a deer and that's the dinner bell for the brown bears. So they come in half the time, well, I should say half the time, but lots of times you're going to lose your deer to a bear and, you know, it's, it's his turn. So, yeah, that's great. They, they think they're pretty tasty, too. <laughs> yeah, apparently, yeah. Luckily, they don't like uh, former Canadians that much, so... <laughs> <laughs> and Alan, I think you're aware that uh, the Mule Deer Foundation doesn't just uh, want to be the leader for mule deer, but for also blacktail deer. And there's two species of blacktail deer. There's the Sitka, as you mentioned, found in Alaska and, and parts of Canada. And then there's the Columbia blacktail deer, which is found in uh, Washington, Oregon, and California. And um, we, we often don't give enough credit to those advocates and those constituents who blacktails are their lives so i mention it because a lot of folks you know think it's just mule deer but no we are we are advocates for blacktail deer we do a lot of work for blacktail deer and as you said you know it's a great game opportunity and eating opportunity i know a friend of mine lives in prince of wales island and uh, he just raves about how fun it is to hunt them and, and more importantly how good it is to eat them and so i'm hoping to get up there in the next few years but you know I'm looking at your bio here, Alan, and it also said you went to Harvard Business School and you were a professional soccer player. Man, what an eclectic life you've led. <laughs> well, I I was at SECO originally, uh, school there, playing soccer there, and we had a really great program, and then I ended up going into the pros uh, after my second year at college, 
And I was I played in England as a, when I was 15, 16 years old. I went over there and uh, played for a couple teams there, then came back and finished high school. Then after uh, I left college and went to play in the old NASL, uh, North American Soccer League, and then went back to England and played another season there with Middlesbrough and got my ankle broken. And so that was pretty much the end of the old soccer career. Um, my dad has often said many times I should be sending that guy a check that broke my <laughs> ankle because it was, <laughs> it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It made me go get a real job where I had you know, I could money so I could support my hunting vices. Well, something something tells me that that broken ankle probably uh, uh, doesn't always feel as good as you'd like it to when you're on those mountain hunts for sheep. No, it's uh, it reminds me every day of the guy Trevor that uh, did it. So, uh, <laughs> especially on a cold, crisp. Trevor, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, uh, getting back to the the Mule Deer Foundation and real quick and on the uh, subject of the conservation there. The thing I really love about the Mule Deer Foundation is that they're the only organization that's really out there on the forefront with those species you're talking about. Because, the, you know, for a lot of us that live in the Northwest, it's just our common animal. And, yeah, the numbers are good uh, as a rule of thumb. We have some issues with access, public access especially. But it still is a species that needs to be managed. We need to keep studying them. We need to know what's happening. Because as we've seen with lots of other species, all of a sudden there's a problem with it, whether that's a disease that comes in, a hoof disease, or uh, we have the problem in uh, Washington, Oregon with the hair loss and, um, you know, that kills them in the winter months. And they think that it's from a snail, I believe, or a slug that's been imported, that yeah. the eggs get into the system. And those kinds of studies in that have got to be done. And there's a lot of research involved to make sure that this resource continues uh, at the numbers that we have. And I don't see anybody else out there that's really stepping up and, um, you know, putting these animals at the forefront of, uh, you know, uh, being a, a major cause. So. I can tell you as Northwest hunters, we really, really appreciate everything that the foundation's doing and that the, their focus is, you know, on the deer species that are important to us. So. Well, we are, we are driven by the members and uh, the science. And, you know, what we hear from our membership around the country and around the world is, you know, get on that front line. Uh, deal with the conservation issues, whether it's a habitat issue, a disease issue. A policy issue and and so you know at least in in my involvement over the past half decade of working with mdf is you know it has been extremely rewarding getting out and dealing with those things i know what you know i've dealt with some of the issues in southeast alaska where where forestry practices have gotten stands to stem exclusion stage which basically means no light is getting to the ground so there's no plants you know food plants at the ground level so we need to get in there and you know open some of that forest back up and start creating some habitat and uh you know it it really is driven by the conservation of the species and the future of the populations and as you mentioned you know if we're going to be recruiting the next generation or the next five generations of conservation minded people you know there has to be opportunities 
to see these animals, to hunt these animals, and to really understand what makes them tick and how to get involved. And so, you know, we really appreciate what you do on your platform. And, you know, we look forward to continue, you know, advocating for not just mule deer, but the blacktail deer. So, uh, you know, thanks for those kind words. And, uh, uh, you know, for folks listening, you know, reach out to your, your local folks, Game and Fish, uh, Forest Service, BLM, private landowners and mule deer folks and get involved in some of these issues. Well, and, and the other point that you're making that's so true is that when we've got the science to back what we're doing as conservation, as sustainable use conservationists, and as hunters, there's no argument back from the other side. You know, I like to call them the bunny huggers, but those people that, you know, don't want us to uh, do what we do, when, they, when you tell them the whole story and they see that the, like you're saying, the uh, practices of both logging uh, and, of course, we want good logging practices where the streams and that are protected, but the reality is the habitat improves if logging, as an example, is done correctly. And that's just one small part of it, but there again, having the backup of the science and the foundation being involved in that gives us the cannon fodder we need when we do get into debates with folks about, you know, the pros and cons of hunting and, you know, the conservation that goes with it. So, um, you know, it's We've got to do it, and we've got to be part of it, and we just can't be going out and just shooting stuff and not be responsible for the overall package of conservation and science that goes with it because that will make us all a better group uh, using hunters as that group. Uh, whether you're a turkey hunter, a whitetail hunter, or a yield deer hunter, we're all in the same game, and we all have to be part of the answer and the solutions going forward. So. You know, what you're referring to, Alan, is uh, really what, what a lot of us call the North American model of conservation. And, you know, that sustainable use and giving back and democracy of hunting and that. And I know you've hunted all over the world. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you see when you're out there. You know, let folks know how good we have it, because I don't think it's the same in other places. It really isn't. The first thing that you always notice going overseas, and whether that's Europe or Asia or even Africa, we are so lucky here in America and, of course, Canada as well, that we have public ground. And we're able to buy a license over the counter and go out and go hunting. There's nowhere else in the world that that happens in Europe, it's almost all private ground. Spain has a little bit of what you might call public ground where you can draw a permit. But you know, it's just not like this, and we are so blessed to have that. The one thing that I do also see, which is kind of, a, I don't know, ironic, I guess, in a way, is that when you do get to these other places, and I don't care if it's China, Russia, you know, Pakistan, wherever, when you do get out in the country, in the mountains, people are all the same. You know, I tell people I've been to Pakistan, whatever it is now, nine, ten times, I guess. And they go, what are you, nuts? You know, what about the Taliban and everything else? Well, the thing is, you're hunting with the Taliban, so they're your friends, you know, so it's not a problem. But when you get out there in the country, everybody's the same. Everybody has the same values. You know, they want to take care of their family. They want to make a living, and they understand how nature works and that, 
hunting is part of that process and the meat that goes with it, the challenge that goes with it, the conservation of the animals through sustainable use model, taking a few. You know, the cashmere markhor is a great example of an animal that was down to, you know, maybe around a thousand, they think, uh, animals at the time. Now there are over 7,000 of them because of issuing a few permits every year. So that money literally goes to that local village. I mean, I stood there and watched them count out 20,000 U.S. dollars to a little tiny village called Dasu in the middle of Pakistan. That changed that village's world. You know, now they've got a part-time doctor that comes through. They've got school, uh, a school and some school supplies that they have in there. You know, it's big. You know, we're not just talking about whacking one animal and, you know, leaving. This is a, a major change. So these guys, of course, they're looking at it saying, well, I better quit shooting these markhor for lunch, which they were doing because it's just a free animal to them when they're in the mountains. There's some crazy American that wants to come over here and pay us a bunch of money to shoot this thing. <laughs> Let's save them. Yeah. You know, so it, it really does work, that, that concept in that. But uh, it's... it's you know, getting to go over there and see it and, uh, you know, be part of it is really a, a blessing. So Rugged Expeditions tracks your adventures around the globe. Tell us, you know, I, I know I'm sure it's very difficult. You've you've collected over 350 species uh, around the world. How, what is your favorite hunt or the most challenging hunt that you've ever been on? Let's see. Well, my favorite is Cape Buffalo. Uh, I love doing that more than anything and try and, you know, do it every year if possible. What's, wh- what about it? What, what's so exciting about your Cape Buffalo hunts? I think it's just the sheer fear factor. <laughs> you, know, the, you, you know, the old line, they look at you as if you owe them money. Uh, <laughs> it's so true. And, uh, you know, we try and get in as close as we can. I like to, I've got an old double rifle that, you know, kills on one end and maims on the other. And uh, it's a 577 Nitro. And uh, so, you know, you got to get in close because they're not exactly accurate at 100 yards. That's for darn sure. But um, I think just the thrill of it, and you never know what they're going to do. I mean, one time you hit them with one shot and, you know, they go down. Other times it's 13 shots later and, you know, or they charge or... We've had a lot of excitement with them through the years. And I think that they're just big and mean and all that, and it's probably the best adrenaline rush you can get, uh, you know, from our normal mundane lives. So <laughs> I kind of like that stuff. Uh, I mean, my passion is mountain hunting for sure, and, you know, probably the most challenging, I would say, is probably the, you know, the, the markhors in Pakistan, you know, it's steep mountain goat terrain and, uh, you know, of course, nobody speaks English and you're up there for weeks on end trying to find the right one and or just find one lots of times. But uh, I, I, probably that's them. But I hope that I'm able to uh, keep buffalo hunting to the you know, to the very end or till they got to point them out to me and go, the one on the left, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So, so Alan, when... I, I've been fortunate. I've hunted uh, mountain goats and bighorn sheep a couple of times, and you know, live on the on the backbone of the continent here in in South Central Montana. 
And what I found is good footwear is essential. I mean, I used to try to get by with cheap boots, but, you know, I buy the best boot I can afford. And thankfully for me, that's a boot that's made here in Montana. What's your take and, and what boots do you use, if you don't mind us asking? No, I, I've been using Kenetrek uh, for years, um, way before we ever had a show. And I think when they first came out, I was in on them. And, yeah, it's it's the most important tool that you have. You know, there's nothing you can do if your shoes don't fit. Um, of course, they've got to have support and, you know, good quality leather and everything that goes with it and a good sole for the different kinds of terrain. But uh, plus they're now making safari shoes. They've got, you know, a wide range of different uh, items. They've got the cold weather, you know, felt insert boots as well, the pack boots. Um, there's nothing more important. I think in my list that I have on the website that talks about what to take on trips, you know, we talk about whatever you do, be sure you break your boots in. And I've been on a lot of trips with guys where they show up and I'm looking at their boots when they put them on on day one thinking, you are in deep doo-doo there, buddy. <laughs> you're you're going to live in those boots for the next two weeks. And, I, you know, I think you just pulled the price tag off before you, you know, pulled them out of the bag. And, you know, you got to break them in, but... Well, the good thing with the Kenetrek ones is they've got the super lining in them, and I've never had much of a problem with breaking them in. They fit me, you know, perfect. But uh, no matter what boot you're wearing, breaking them in ahead of time, whether that's working in the yard with them, you know, getting them wet, you know, I like to soak mine ahead of time just to let the leather break down a little bit too. But, uh, no, it's super important. Yeah, and, you know, Kenetrek, I know I had my uh, Mountain Hunters rebuilt. Uh, last year and and didn't even know they had that program till I stopped in the shop and they're just like oh yeah you know as long as the leather's good we can put new soles on them and uh, that was a is that crazy that you wear your boots so much that you wear the soles out (laughs) well you know being a bigger guy you know my my orthotic uh, foot guy told me a long time ago you get a year out of a good pair of boots you're doing pretty well and when I took them in they said well how long have you had these and I said well been about six years <laughs> and they said they were due a long time ago so well that's what i told the guys i was back there uh, at their new facility that they've got and uh i said you guys the biggest problem is you're not selling enough boots because you make them too dang good i don't need to get a new pair every year like i used to you know i get four or five years out of them and i'm in them you know 200 days a year and they started laughing and i said well don't make them any cheaper but i'm just giving <laughs> you some business advice. yeah and I did get their packs, and that's what I wear now. Um, actually, warm this year. We uh, we got about a foot of snow right around Thanksgiving, so I was out Thanksgiving morning, harvested a whitetail here in uh, Montana, wearing my Kenetrek packs. So, uh, you know, no, it's, they're awesome. It's amazing of all the things that we have in the hunting world these days that it comes down to footwear to determine on you know how comfortable you're going to be on a hunt. Yeah. Especially with an old bad ankle that gets cold all the time, those shoes are the cat's meow. I'm telling you. So, does it predict the weather? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, 28 degrees in Seattle, and uh, I can tell when I woke up. So yeah. Cool. 
So, Alan, you referenced uh, on your website, you've got a uh, some hunting tips, which includes some packing lists for uh, your hunts around the world. Can you provide you know, a little bit more ideas that, that people who are, are taking either an international or, or even, you know, somebody back east coming in to hunt in the mountains in the west, some advice that you would give um, on prep for that? Uh, obviously, the boots are, are a big part of it, but, but there's got to be other things as well. The reason why we put the list up is that I, for one, always had a list taped to my hunting closet. I would go through a checklist, and we put one together for mountain hunts uh, slash North American hunts, and then another one for Africa, which is really, you know, two different uh, list of goodies that you want to take with you. And I still use it. I mean... Every time I go on a trip, I go through my checklist because there's nothing worse than getting there and finding out that, oh, I forgot my scope covers or, oh, I don't have a copy of my passport and now I've lost my passport. Um, you know, when it comes to traveling, what one of the recommendations that I've used that's come in handy twice now, unfortunately, is leaving a copy of your passport in each one of your bags. Hmm. And the reason... For it, while on the one side of the coin you might think, oh, well, I don't want anybody to have that information, but remember your passport doesn't have your address or anything on it. But when your bag gets lost or the tag's missing that's on it, if they open it up, there's your information. I mean, it says, you know, Jay Allen Smith right there. So they now know they can check the list on the flight and say, okay, that one belongs to this guy. Um, because there's nothing to lose, the bag tag or your name tag or something off a bag. And if you get somewhere and you lose your passport or it gets stolen, now you've got a copy that you can go to the embassy and, you know, get a new copy. And I've actually gotten away with getting on a plane in Tanzania with just a copy, and they let me leave the country um, because it was a nice color copy. And uh, so, yeah, that's one of the things I just try and do all the time is, you know, keep a copy of that, uh, depending on the trip, you know, what to take. The other reason that I really like doing a list is it stops me from taking too much stuff. <laughs> mm. I think we as hunters are pretty much, when you say this, Steve, we like to have a bunch of stuff and gear, and you've got to buy all this stuff, and you're going to go on a trip and you want to take it with you, you know? Yeah, it was uh, real interesting, um, sit, you know, traveling through the airports this fall, you know, just watching what people were taking. And, you know, the list thing, I sort of chuckled when you said it because my nephew came out to hunt elk this year, and he didn't make a list. Well, he forgot a knife, forgot a rope, forgot a gloves. And, he, you know, essential, and he just was so excited. But if he had had a list. But, uh, you know, I was watching Jeremiah Johnson with my boy the other night. My boy's 10. For the first time he's ever seen it, he said... How come he has the same shirt on all the time? And I said, well, he didn't have any other stuff. And I, you know, I said, you'd have to have a pack horse to haul around the stuff we hunted with now. <laughs> and, you know, we really, I think, overbuy in a good way. But, you know, understanding what you should take and what you shouldn't take um, can, you know, particularly if you're flying anywhere, if you go to Alaska or tour up, you know, somewhere where you're on a, a float plane or a small bush plane, you really ought to watch your weight. So, um, 
having a list and really understanding what not to take is essential as what to take. Yeah, for sure. And there's nothing worse than paying for excess baggage. And then you go and you're on the trip and you find out you didn't use half the stuff you brought, you know, that's, and that's partly how my list evolved was my hunting buddy, Matt Padgett and I, when we would be on a trip, we got to the point where we started looking at the end of the trip and saying, okay, what didn't we use on this trip? And do we really need to take it again? You know, um, so as we whittled it down, that really helped. You know, we'd end up with three knives and, you know, uh, Leatherman-type, you know, multi-tool and all that, and then find out that the other guy had all the same stuff, too. Well, you don't need knives in Africa because somebody's, yeah, I mean, you always need a knife, but you don't need to have all your skinning knives because you got guys to do it. Well, you know, we had to learn that the hard way and hauling them around and all that. So, but, uh, no, it's good to, you know, and there's a bunch of other tips on there, too. On the website, it's uh, jallensmith.com, and we've got some other tips about some videos about using the wind and some other uh, items on there, some packing tips on uh, one of the things I like to do overseas, speaking of Kenetrek boots, is I always carry my, whatever boots I'm going to be hunting in, I always carry them in my carry-on. I don't check them. If you lose your bag and you get to nowhere, Russia, you can always buy a pair of pants and a coat and a shirt, but you cannot buy a pair of boots that you can go climb a mountain on. And uh, that that happened to us in Yakutia when I was with Jay Link and some of the other guys over there on a sheep hunt. And two of the guys, their bags got lost, and so did mine. But I had my boots, and they had to go into this little <laughs> shop in Yakutia, Russia, in the middle of nowhere and trying to find a pair of boots that they could hunt in. And uh, the one guy got two days and was crippled, you know, from the blisters that were so bad that, you know, he had just had to wait it out. Luckily, he got a sheep on the second day, so he was successful, but he was not pretty. So uh, Cool. Uh, so, Alan, I, I, I see you're an author, too. You've both written fiction and nonfiction. Tell us a little bit about those books. The hunting books uh, got started from, that was my first venture into the public domain, was, uh, you know, we were always on trips and always kept journals and things like that and decided to do uh, a book and uh, about uh, different trips we've been on, and it was called Close Calls and Hunting Adventures, and, uh, and uh, so we put that together. And it was very successful right off the get-go, and it started getting carried by uh, different stores. And uh, with its success, then I kept plugging away at some more hunting books. And then I got a concept for the first novel when I was hunting in the Central African Republic. And while I want to clarify that the novels are all fiction, okay, there's no truth. If you recognize something in those novels... It's fiction, trust me. But uh, <laughs> there might be a little bit of truth to some of the uh, things that happened in the Central African Republic when we were there, but it was such a great adventure that it was easy to make a story around it. And then that evolved into, uh, the first one was It's Not a Game Anymore, and then there's two sequels uh, after it that came out, and they've been fantastically successful. The, the great thing with novels is that it's a much bigger audience than the hunting books, which, you know, are pretty much geared around the big game hunting world. 
Uh, whereas novels, uh, we sell a lot of e-books through Amazon Prime and uh, like Amazon in general. And of course, it seems that more and more the e-books are what people go to. It's easy to read from your tablet or even your phone nowadays. So while I'm still a hardcover book guy, you know, uh, lots of people have gone to the e-book. So that's where we see the huge sales numbers is from the Which is easier to write? Uh, hunting books because the stories come from the heart and from your memories and from your notes from your novel, or excuse me, from your journals. The, uh, the fictional books, I would say, are more rewarding because at the end of it, you've created something from scratch. Uh, if that makes sense, whereas a hunting book is reliving something you've already done. So uh, I enjoy both of them a lot. I, I really love writing. It's been uh, a passion of mine forever. And so the fact that it's successful makes it even better. You know, I'd do it if I only sold one copy, never mind yeah. hundreds of thousands. So it's been it's been great. Well, I you know, I, I have to be honest with you. I haven't read your books yet, but I'm planning on to. And what, what I look forward to is the accuracy of the conservation and of the hunting message. Too much, so many books, particularly not uh, fiction novels I read where they talk about being in the outdoors and the conservation and, and the hunting, they get things wrong and I pick up on it very quickly. Um, yeah. And so I imagine that yours are probably pretty accurate uh, and, and based on your experience and that. So I look forward to reading those. So. so Alan, you are coming to hunt expo this year. Are you not? I can't wait. This is going to be great. It's been a couple of years since I've been there, so I can't wait to get back. So you have been. It, it, it has changed quite a bit. It's gotten, it's gotten so big these days. So you are going to be there on Saturday doing a seminar uh, talking about hunting all 29 species of big game in North America, um, signing books. You're going to be doing booth appear- appearances with Kenetrek and one of your new sponsors, right? Cryptic? Yes, with Cryptek, the Battlefield to Backcountry Camouflage. They are a fantastic company based out of Boise. Uh, we're so excited to have them as partners. Uh, they've got a great product line. Uh, you know, it's, it's nice to have a product you believe in. Here again, much like Kenetrek, I was using Cryptech before they ever came on board. Uh, <laughs> not saying that other people might sell out for their shows, but um, we don't do that. We actually use the products and have used them. And they're one of those classic examples of a, you know, a company that's uh, U.S. based. Uh, they're Butch and Josh have just done a great job of growing the brand. And I'm very proud to be part of the, you know, the whole group of them. They're, they're really coming out with some new patterns and they've got uh, great patterns already. But um, I like the fact that they have different patterns for different terrain, whether you're hunting the desert mountains, like we just did a, a uh, California bighorn sheep hunt here in September over in eastern Washington, which is sagebrush and you know, your brown tones. And now whether we're duck hunting in western Washington, which is all your dark greens or in the jungles, we've got that as well. They've got patterns that cover it also. Yeah, it's been great. And um, one thing with the seminar, too, that I'm really excited about and I want folks to know when they're there, when we're holding the seminar, 
it really, we like to do a question and answer session throughout as much as possible. So if anyone's got any questions about, hey, I'm thinking about going on a woodland caribou hunt in Newfoundland, what can you tell me about it or, you know, what happened on your trip? That's the way we like to handle them. And we're not there to sell any outfit or any hunting company or anything like that. We're there to talk about, you know, what to look for, uh, what to take on the trip, uh, the caliber of rifle that you might need for different species, anything like that, um, you know, wide open to any questions. Uh, we like to keep them free-flowing, and it's not me just rattling on. So uh, anybody that's thinking about any trips uh, for any of the different, you know, North American 29 and, and even some of the oddball ones too, uh, whether it's walrus that, you know, isn't really part of that or anything else, um, I'd be more than happy to help out and answer where I can. And if they need recommendations on who to talk to, now we've got several different people that, you know, can certainly find a hunt for people, but we're not there to pitch anything. That's the main thing. I don't want people to come there thinking it's going to be a sales job for somebody. Well, knowing how good a storyteller you are based on your show, based on your books and and our interview here, I suspect there will be a lot of fun conversations about your adventures as well. Um, that's going to be Saturday at 10 a.m. Um, at the Western Hunting and Conservation Expo. So, And then after that, he'll be out at the Cryptic and the Kennetrek Boots and, and around. And we are happy to have you there this year. Alan, what's next? What What's coming up? Um, you've got some new shows. You've got a new book that you're working on. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, we've got a new book that's uh, it will be out uh, this summer. And uh, it's another uh, tales of adventure of hunting around the world, short stories uh, from different trips using the same format that we've been uh, doing here in the past with the hunting books. And I'm real excited about this one. You know, one of the things that's really happened in the book publishing business is that because of our digital photos now that we get to take, when you compare that to writing a book 15 years ago, where you were having to scan in a 35 millimeter photo and the quality was so bad, you know, sometimes I open the old books up and just cringe when I see the quality. <laughs> well, now with the new book and with the publishing the way it is, the high-quality photos that you can put in there are out of this world. And we've got so many great photos from all these different places we've been to that the photo part of it really helps tell the tale in a high-quality fashion. So... That's really something that, uh, you know, is a whole new twist to what's happening. And, of course, if you get the e-books, the photos are in there at an even higher quality. Um, but that's just, you know, another twist to what's happening now. So, uh, wise we've, uh, we're going back to Pakistan again. Uh, we've got a couple of things there to do. They're going to be repeat species. Uh, we're looking for new species. Uh, to try and, you know, if anything comes up where they open a new area. Uh, as funny as it sounds, I've kind of run out of new stuff to hunt. Uh, we're, but, uh, you know, there's so many great things to continue to hunt, especially when it comes to, you know, mule deer in Montana, or, of course, we love to hunt blacktail in Washington and Oregon and sit to blacktail in Alaska. But uh, this past year, we were able to go to Russia and be one of the first hunters to go after the uh, white lip bear, which is a 
huge black bear that lives in the rainforest uh, by the China-Korea-Russia border. Mm. And it's the area where the Amur tiger lives. And the odd way of looking at why hunting helps, the whole point of the Russians opening the Amur bear and the white lip bear up for hunting is that they're trying to reduce their numbers because they compete for the same food sources, especially at certain critical times of year, with the Amur tiger. So here we're helping out with the tiger habitat by taking some of the, especially the big male bears that will dominate an area, uh, getting those out of the um, system to help the food sources for the tiger. So... You know, and here again, hunters helping in a conservation program. And the Russians have done a real good job. They, they've got a uh, good protection system for the tigers and vast reserves that they've set aside. But, of course, as we all know, the tigers are still getting poached worldwide because, you know, some people think that it's got some magical powers, their bones and all this. So, uh, but, uh, you know, that was real exciting to get to go and do that show we created from it is a big hit. We were able to film a live Amur tiger that walked past the blind in the daylight. You know, just incredible footage. So uh, if folks haven't seen that show, definitely go to uh, YouTube or Amazon Prime on YouTube where it, uh, you put in YouTube backslash J. Allen Smith and it comes up and all of our shows are there. So they're uh, free to watch on there. And and for anybody who's uh, who's listening, it is j a l a i n smith dot com. Um, just so so you know how to do that if you have not seen his name, if this is the first time. Many people probably this is not their first time, but uh, but want to make sure that's clear. And uh, you uh, you you have some great adventures coming up this year as well, and and we're looking forward to seeing those on on your shows coming up and hearing about them at Hunt Expo. So. Alan, thank you so much for your time today. We, we really appreciate it. It was great talking to you and hearing more about your adventures. Yeah, Alan. And, well, I uh, hope to see you all. <clears throat> Go ahead, see sorry. Oh, no, I just wanted to say I know you're a busy guy and, and you know, all the, uh, the, the adventures you're on, the prep work on that. So taking some time out of your day to help us at the Mule Deer Foundation and, and help get the, the conservation and hunting message out there to our listeners and to other folks is extremely important, and we thank you for that. Well, I hope to see everybody at the convention and uh, come by and see us for the seminar. And if they've got any questions, bring them with you. And um, not only the North American 29, but if there's anything else, bring them. And uh, we might have a few laughs along the way, too. So I uh, can't wait to see everybody. Yeah, thank you so much. We're looking forward to meeting you at a Hunt Expo. Again, he's going to be there on Saturday at 10 a.m. And uh, we're going to close this up by listening to a little bit more of Alan's music. Thank you very much for your time today. Until next time, this is Jody Stemmer. And I'm Steve Blinn. Until we talk to you next time. On Saturday, February 16th at 10 a.m., J. Allen Smith will be telling stories about hunting all 29 North American big game species during his seminar at the Western Hunting and Conservation Expo. Make sure you catch him and all the other outstanding seminar speakers we have lined up at this year's Hunt Expo. For more information, go to www.huntexpo.com or download the Hunt Expo app. See you at the show! Thanks for talking Mule Deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. 
The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talkin' Mule Deer.